Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Hello, welcome back to How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Today we're going to talk about somebody who everybody seems to be talking about right now. And I brought my sister back onto this pod because she and I were just talking about it the other day and I realized I need her because she was bringing up things I hadn't thought about and things that I think everyone's probably wondering about, kind of dispelling what's fact and what's fiction from the Netflix show that's coming out or that is out right now. Plus, just kind of urban lore that we've all believed to be true. And some of it is and some of it isn't. And then this incessant need to know why Dahmer acted this way. Even in the world of serial killers, he's very unusual. And so I thought, you know what? I know a few things about Dahmer. And um, here's what I know. And here's what I believe to be true about him. It was the fall of my first year of my very scary PhD program. And we all started talking about what it was that interested us the most and why we're there. And there weren't many of us studying violence. In fact, I think there was only, and I know it, there were only two of us admitted into the clinical neuroscience program. But there were others who were studying genetics and behaviors. So the conversation kind of took twists and turns. And as the conversation progressed, we were joined by some of the professors. And we ended up talking about Dahmer. And according to one of these professors, or it was a graduate student, but I think it was a professor who had worked with a psychiatrist who had worked with Dahmer, he was going on talking about Dahmer is not like the serial killers we are meant to study, we usually study, so we need to pay attention to him. He wasn't a psychopath. In fact, Dahmer didn't even like killing. He didn't want to. He had to. His urges to be intimate with these corpses, sexually or otherwise, was as strong as his urges to drink water or breathe air. That is not a typical urge. He would drink excessively, alcohol excessively, to try to dampen these urges and to muster up the courage to act on them when he couldn't squash them. Don't get me wrong, he's an absolute freaking monster, and he should have committed himself or done something to attempt to stop but he was not like the others. He had some tiny measure of empathy, remorse, and guilt. That is not a pass. It's just something for us to pay attention to when we study killers. And it gives us a clue as to why and how this happened, and we're going to dive into that. So he's not like you and me. He doesn't feel like you and me, but he's not like the killers either. He definitely killed for his own gratification. Selfish son of a bitch, but he did not enjoy killing at all. And that is rare. So I invite you to look into this well-known serial killer with a new lens, through a new lens. This is a lens that could elucidate what happened, not just for the sake of unraveling this mystery that now has all of us Netflix addicts at the end of our seat, but also to see how we could possibly prevent the next Jeffrey Dahmer. This is a different type of episode of How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. I'm going to answer listener questions that were posted on my Instagram, Dr. Michelle Ward. Okay. First of all, hi, Heidi. Hello. (laughs) Hi, glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Heidi and I have been talking about Jeffrey Dahmer since I was in high school. 
And as most of us know, Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer, also known as the Milwaukee Cannibal, was an American serial killer, sex offender, all sorts of things, who committed the murder and dismemberment of 17 boys and men between 1978 and 1991. This is straight out of Wikipedia. Many of his murders involved necrophilia, cannibalism, and the permanent preservation of body parts. He was born in 1960, and he was killed in prison by um, another inmate in 1994. When Dahmer was arrested, he was living in an apartment alone, but not really alone. He had two human hearts, a bag of organs, seven human skulls, several severed body parts, and Polaroids of his victims posed in horrifying positions taken after they had died. And to add to this charming visual, what was missing from the apartment were the body parts that Dahmer had actually eaten. So we're going to do this a little different. We're going we're to begin at the end of this because rather than ramping up through the crimes, I think we need this new lens to look at Jeffrey Dahmer from the beginning to the end. So we're going to do this differently than, than I've seen because I, it helped me understand him better. So we're going to begin at his trial. And during his trial, Dahmer was diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder, we'll dive into that, and borderline personality disorder and psychotic disorder, but both schizotypal and borderline can have psychotic features, so I'm not really sure why they threw that one in there. But other than not wanting his victims to leave, I can't see anything in his history to support the borderline personality diagnosis. I think, you know, the hallmark of that one is the fear of abandonment, but he lacks all the other characteristics, like really volatile interpersonal relationships. He doesn't have any. So I think the answers lie in the schizotypal personality disorder and it feels right on. It is a very bizarre disorder. And it's going to, focusing on that, is going to get us much closer to what drove Dahmer than anything else. Okay, explain, please. You know, I've heard it called schizotypal and schizotypal. I'm going to call it schizotypal um, just because that's the way it was said when I was in graduate school. So what is schizotypal personality disorder and how is it related to violence? Somebody with schizotypal personality disorder has severe social anxiety they tend to speak and act in bizarre or unusual ways, often they wear weird clothes. They rarely, if ever, have close friends outside of their immediate family members. In fact, they're often super suspicious and paranoid of other people. There are some features that really stand out and look a lot like schizophrenia, and that's a tendency to misinterpret reality. And that's like this. A noise will be mistaken for a voice. Or they'll be like, oh, yeah, I feel I feel our dead grandma sitting here, right here next to us. And you're like, oh, I don't think so. And this can happen over and over again. So the, the door can creak and he can be like, what'd you say? What'd you say? Oh, someone's saying hello. And you're like, no, the door is creaking. No, someone's saying hello. There's also eccentric behavior and, remember this one, preoccupation with highly unusual fantasies. And that sounds particularly true for Dahmer. Those who have schizotypal personality disorder are also very uncomfortable with intimacy, which might be why he never went on regular dates, and they are stiff and awkward in their interactions with other people. You'll also hear reports of other odd beliefs or even magical thinking. For example, being superstitious, overly superstitious, or thinking of themselves as psychic, having ESP, all of that. Our mom always thought she did, but she wasn't schizotypal. <laughs> As you're talking, I'm thinking, well, that's kind of borderline. That's a little borderline. So 
Yeah, there's some connection similarities. Yeah. The the I think the main difference is he doesn't have relationships that can become violent and tumultuous like you'll see in a borderline. And he never attempted to hurt himself, which often we see. But yeah, these other symptoms, you're right, they kind of overlap. And here but here's where they fall. They the big departure is someone with schizotypal personality disorder is emotionally distant, aloof, and cold. And they have limited emotional responses. They seem flat. And that is a trait they share with psychopaths. Now, schizotypal people who suffer from schizotypal personality disorder do have some emotions and they do feel some guilt, remorse, and empathy, but it's a lot lower than normal, but it's not devoid and absent like you're going to see in a psychopath. Questions so far? It's just incredible what happened. It's shocking. It's disturbing. And to put a label to it kind of makes yeah. it more like he's, it humanizes him a little bit, but it, he's still scary, scarier than shit. Like who can eat body parts for days? For days. Well, and that's kind of when I wanted to, why I wanted to flip it and look at this differently because the, everything happened and then people dug back into his past to try to make sense of it. But if we know he has this particular disorder, a very funky version of it, it does not excuse his monstrous behavior, but if we truly want to understand it, let's look at it through the lens of what we know. We know he has this. So then let's look at his childhood with that information. So some people call schizotypy or schizotypal personality disorder a watered-down schizophrenia. They're not as extreme as schizophrenics, but some of their issues are. It's just that they're not as obvious as a schizophrenic. Schizophrenics are going to hear and see things that are not there. A person with schizotypal personality disorder might hear things that aren't there, but they're not making it up. It's from a noise. So like I said before, it could be a creaking door, but they make imaginary people out of those real life noises. These are called unusual perception experiences. And someone with schizotypal personality disorder is more common than schizophrenia. It is believed, well, actually, it's even more common than we think, and I'll explain that too. Now, it's believed that schizotypy is caused by both genes and environment, so much so that if you have a relative, a family member with a schizophrenic disorder, then you are far more likely to develop schizotypal personality disorder. And in a regular population, schizophrenia occurs about in about 1% of the population, one out of every 100 people. Schizotypal personality, however, is about 4%, but probably much higher than that because there are odd and eccentric people who have all sorts of crazy thoughts going through their heads, but we don't know it because they're never diagnosed. You might be thinking this disorder sounds similar to someone on the autism spectrum. Well, a little bit. I'm, I know somebody, but I just feel like what, what makes you cross over to the cannibalism and the torture? Like, do all... Mm -mm. People diagnosed with this have mm -mm. tendencies to eat people? God, no. Could you imagine if 4% of us were walking around eating other people? That'd be amazing. Um, thankfully, The Walking Dead is real. Thankfully, no. So while I think this disorder could have been the underpinnings, the beginnings of his weird, obsessive urges that were beyond normal urges, while I think that they might be born out of the schizotypal personality disorder, let us say it, most people with this disorder, are their obsessions are A, not as strong as this, and B, not involving 
killing people and eating them. You know, rather than just focusing on, oh no, his parents were divorced. I mean, divorcing a cannibal does not make, but but this unusual disorder could feed into it. And we're gonna we're gonna really understand how. And again, nobody knows for sure. But if you look at this with a with with the scope of understanding what we know medically psychologically, environmentally, genetically about this guy, I think we get a much better picture. I feel like I understand him a lot better now that I've done this deep dive. A lot of the features of schizotypal personality disorder have commonalities with people who are on the autism spectrum. Need to know this. This is what, because I was like, wait a minute, this sounds like, you know, an artistic, artistic friend's. Autism is almost always diagnosed or at least noticed in childhood and schizotypal personality disorder in adulthood. Plus, those who are on the autism spectrum tend to miss social cues, while those with schizotypal personality disorder tend to make more of cues than that are really there. So a normal interaction will lead them to be paranoid, read way more into it, whereas somebody on the spectrum wouldn't have noticed anything out of the interaction because they miss the cues altogether. So in some ways they're similar, in other ways they're absolute opposites of each other. Those with schizotypal personality disorders are more likely to be violent. Now this is a fine line to walk and I want to be very careful not to promote any stigmatization of mental illness. That is not the goal. And if we do that, then people don't get help. So we're not going to do that, but we are going to explain what, what that means. And the vast majority of people with schizotypal personality disorder will never be violent. But like, like schizophrenia, they do have a higher likelihood to become violent. So it happens rarely, but within their own population, it happens more frequently than it does in a non-schizophrenia um, spectrum population. Again, super rare, but higher within the population. And there are theories to why that is. But even on the most basic level, it isn't a curvy line to get from schizotypal to violence. Because one of the hallmark features is paranoia and suspicion. And the suspicion extends even to friends and family. And they don't have friends. They mainly have family, acquaintances, family, coworkers. And when a person is paranoid, they are more vigilant and self-protective. And they don't trust the intentions of others. So if you think about it, there are so many murderers who had weird behaviors and beliefs and even more whose paranoid justifications made them say things like, it was them or me, even if when there was no threat. Right. Does and that makes sense? Yeah. And I think paranoia, we can all have a little bit of paranoia in certain um, incidents, but when you live with it daily, it's got to be constant like intensity inside of your body all the time. Yep. Can you imagine living with that? Well, people with schizotypal disorder often, as I mentioned, they exhibit blunted affect, and that means their emotions are constricted or often appear absent. So you can't read a lot of emotion on them, but they do have them. They're just lower than other people. So that's another, they don't have as much of a barrier. It can be some of them don't have as much of a barrier to stop them from violence because their emotions just aren't as strong as ours. They're not like they're not psychopathic. They're not devoid of them. But it's they don't experience emotions to the same degree as somebody who doesn't have schizotypal personality disorder. They don't seem to create meaningful connections with people. And it it's theorized that the lack of connectedness could help nudge a person with schizotypal personality disorder into violence. Again, a barrier that's missing. They're a little lower on the emotions, and also they're not connected to people. 
So they could be missing a, a wall that's act that could act as you know an emotion that could act as a wall, a connectedness that could act as a wall between a violent impulse and acting on it, and not acting on that violent impulse. So they want to have connections, but they are they fearful of having connections or. I don't think they want them. I don't, there's, I don't think they want the connections. They don't have them. So we're not, um, we haven't gotten into the juicy details, but um, I've always thought he's wanted, Jeffrey Dahmer wanted connections with people. That's why he would like hold, you know, kidnap them, hold them for a while and then murder them and then eat them because he felt connected to them. So you're absolutely right, but it's not a connection to the person he wants to connect with their physical body. And that is one of the biggest differences with Dahmer. He wanted full control and he did not want them to leave. So he spent an exorbitant amount of time trying to create that. He doesn't want them alive, awake with opinions. He doesn't care about their hopes, dreams, childhood. He doesn't give a shit. He doesn't, he doesn't connect with humans that way. But he doesn't want them to leave. He wants to connect with their physical body. Let's now go back to Dahmer's beginnings with this information about schizotypal personality disorder. As I've said so many times, we as humans have an unescapable urge to dig into a killer's past for an aha moment that explains their diabolical behavior. And Heidi, you and I have talked about this ad nauseum. And we do this because one, we want an explanation we can understand Two, we are aware that our childhoods can influence our adult behaviors. And three, because it makes us feel better. If we can name it, understand it, prevent it, or I don't know, at least make sure we stay away from people who are at risk of it, then we all feel a little safer. I feel like we're a society for labels. Like we are always looking to label that person. Oh, this person do this, does this. So, oh, that person is labeled as or whatever. Yeah, and also, right. if we feel like we know what went wrong, we'll know how not to raise a serial killer mm-hmm. or a person who's going to be, um, you know, killing others or whatnot. And um, so, yeah, we always want to be able to define it for a yep. reason, like something's happened in his childhood or he, wa- he, did, he did this, even down to what our kids ate. When you t- start changing their nutrition, you see like a difference in their behaviors. So maybe like when we want to know, you know, or say Jeffrey Dahmer's parents were abusive to him or locked him in a closet or made him, you know, watch only one thing on TV, then we're like, okay, I get it. But something, yeah. but his diagnosis, like it's still even hard for me to understand a little. And also like, how would I prevent that? But the reality is, is you can't because. It's obviously a mental illness that probably doesn't show right away until he's acting. He was probably fighting the demons in his head since he was young, but it, fighting it for so long, you just finally have to give into it. Well, and I, I didn't want anyone else's impressions, so I wanted, because I, I'm a human and I can be influenced by other people's opinions, so I dug deep into the FBI files um, so that I could say, like, okay, but I want to hear his words right when he was arrested before he had time to think about it. And, you know, we, we're talking about how it is an uncontrollable urge for us to, I need to understand this in, like absolutely abhorrent behavior. So I'm going to dig, I'm going to try to find answers. And we tend to just go straight to childhood. It, 
obviously that's important, but it never gives us enough information. We have to broaden our understanding of what influences behavior in order to understand these freakish monsters who pop up every once and again once and again and also to understand the far less freaky monsters just behavior in general that we have some control over and you know a lot of it's our genes a lot of it we can't control but we can nudge and i'm not saying you know i that we're going to have the answers after this podcast but i think we're going to have more information at least i felt like okay this does not answer all the questions but it it's it's a little bit more than what I thought or what I thought I knew before we started. I feel like, no. I, sorry to interrupt. That's, no, no, go ahead. That's my job. Um, I wonder, you know, everyone has compulsions and obsessions, but like ours, some people's might be food, might be a Birkin bag or what I'm just, whatever, purses, whatever. But what makes your obsession or your compulsions lead to murdering someone, torturing someone? eating them like right. what why is that what how does that become well we're gonna get there we're gonna get there at least as far as yes and that's why I'm so happy you're here today because I was just writing this up I'm like maybe I'll do this one by myself and I'm like no because I get I can be like yeah that makes sense but does it no you have to talk okay. to me like a two-year-old no not a two-year-old just like my much older sister they don't know how old I am so they don't know how old you are we have this urge to go back into their childhoods and Many times we do unearth negative or even traumatic childhood events, and then we want to close the investigation on what caused that particular criminal. Dumb, we found it. Oh, there was abuse, neglect, divorce, whatever it was. And these events, particularly in a case like Dahmer, simply are disproportionate to the crimes of that criminal. Again, if, if neglect, abuse, trauma were the, were the explanation for serial killers, then wouldn't we all, any of us who have experienced those traumas in any combination, wouldn't that be our fate? But it's not. It's more complicated. We see divorce. We see abandonment, even abuse. But usually those negative experiences aren't, they're not particularly rare, unfortunately. So we would have, you know, a whole hell of a lot more Dahmers if his, ba- his parents' horrible marriage was enough to do it, if the combination of his childhood was enough to do it. And even if Dahmer was born more sensitive to negative childhood experiences, which I think he actually was, it's still not enough to explain his horror. I mean, he's the worst. That He's the worst in popular culture. There are worse. Like, I know some Russian serial killers who make him look, you know, pretty kind. I, I think it's so shocking to... And his victims were young, older, mm-hmm. like it does he had didn't discriminate, he didn't have a type. It, I mean they were boy there were men or boys definitely, but I feel like he tortured them, locked them in his apartment. I mean, we can almost just feel the terror that his his poor victims were feeling. By the way, that was his least favorite part. He hate he did not want to hurt them, torment them, torture. He got no joy from that. And that's what I mean. He's not like... But he is because he did. Just because he didn't want to, he still did it. Most of them do it because they like it. They get the thrill from it. And he didn't. It was a means to the end, to his ends. And we're going to... And I can see your face. You don't like it. And nobody does. But it's going to help us understand it better. We we want it to be this way. But then we are going to miss what was really going on. Um why was he different then? You know, why did, 
Like, is this an individual thing? This is just a Jeffy Dahmer thing who didn't get any joy from torturing and doing the killing part. He obviously got joy from the cannibalism part, maybe. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and if that's not normal, then what is, why, why is it so different for him? Part of it's the schizotypal personality disorder, but he's still very unusual even within that population. And and we're gonna we're we're gonna try to figure that out as to best we can, but the best we can. But it's important to understand that it's you we're never gonna know for sure, and he's dead. He is a probably a one-off, let's hope, but he might not be. And if we if we avert our attention away from what we've always thought causes bad outcome, which is bad childhoods, and broaden, look more biologically, medically, in addition to events. The events in Dahmer's life were important, but they, they, we need more. We need all of it. And if we look at what happened to him physically and, and what he was, what was mentally happening for him that has biological roots, couple that with his experiences in childhood, and, I, and then I think we get closer. So, His parents say they saw a change in him at the age of four. And that was around the same time he had surgery for, I believe, a double hernia. And it's hard to tell because at that age, you might also start seeing some signs of schizotypy. They, his parents, you know, they're looking for a reason event because they don't have the information. But this one event might be quite meaningful. You see, there's evidence that schizotypal personality disorder can be caused by brain damage. There have been studies that have shown that people with brain damage are at at a much higher risk for developing schizotypal personality disorder afterward. So there is a relationship between injury to the brain. Injury to the brain during surgery could be, you know, maybe there was too much anesthesia. Maybe he had an allergic reaction to the anesthesia. Maybe there was epoxy. Maybe, Maybe he didn't get, at some point, maybe there was not enough oxygen to his brain during the surgery. These are possibilities you know, they're saying that his behavior changed. If it's because of the surgery, it's it's possible that there was some damage. Because we also have known for decades that those who have schizophrenic spectrum disorders have different brains. They have these larger ventricles and they have reduced gray matter in their brains. It looks like brain atrophy. And there are deficits to the frontal and temporal lobes. And y'all are probably sick of hearing me talk about how those lobes are related to violence. So I am not saying this is what happened. Okay, done. Pack up for the day. I'm just saying, hmm, this could have let helped the, sta- the train leave the station if this guy had some propensity, some genetic underpinnings related to schizotypal personality disorder, and then he has some traumatic event in his brain, and then he's got this kind of complicated childhood afterward. It could be, you know, multiple, a perfect storm, multiple influences coming together. So Keep that in mind that schizotypal personality disorder does have genetic and biological basis and environmental. I mean, this is an event that happened in the environment that could have led to this damage that could have influenced the onset of schizotypal personality disorder. Is it possible? Does that make sense? Is it possible for them, like, so what if you do have a brain injury or something and it's not significant enough for, you know, us to tell, is it easy to? find or notice the differences right away? Would it happen right away? Or is it something they noticed over time that he was changing at four? Or That's a really good question. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, sometimes if you have a traumatic event, 
you're going to see it right away. If this is kind of a reduction in gray matter, um, you know, some sort of atrophy, it could be that it's over time. Um, but they're saying this surgery marked a big difference, that he woke up different, that he was a happier, more energetic boy before he went into surgery and was different afterward. Now, he w- that's what they say, but we also have to look at that through a particular lens. When a tragedy like this happens, we, as I said, we go backward and desperately try to find a cause, an aha moment. There are studies indicating people who've experienced brain trauma are more likely to become schizotypal. I didn't see that in the Netflix documentary. The custom framing company Framebridge will change your opinion of what true customization really is. They measure and handcraft each frame specifically for your piece. So you can frame bridge just about anything. Selfies, game day jerseys, your anniversary dinner menu, or latest artistic masterpiece. Just go to framebridge.com and upload your photo. If you have a physical piece to frame, they'll send you complimentary packaging to safely mail it in. Preview your item in dozens of frame styles, choose your favorite, or get free designer help. The experts at Framebridge custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece right to your door. Instead of paying hundreds at a framing store, Framebridge starts at just $39 plus free shipping. Order online or stop by a Framebridge store near you to work with a designer in person. My favorite design so far has been different size cutouts in black matte with black frames for my gallery wall. Frame your photos or send someone the perfect gift today at framebridge.com. That's framebridge.com. When we talk about how not to raise a serial killer, of course, we look back to see when was the first sign. And hindsight is twenty twenty. We can always be like, aha, it was there, it was then. Not necessarily that the, that's the cause. Like, you know, we have that aha moment when we look at an event from the childhood to look at the cause of the disorder, but or the behavior. But we also look in the back, we look back in history to find when did it actually begin? And It's really easy to do that once you know how the story ends, what the outcome is, what the disorder is. It's much harder in real time to know what a child's behavior means. For example, yes, Jeffrey had that surgery at age four, and his parents report that his behavior changed dramatically. Then Dahmer's first grade teacher told his parents that Dahmer was painfully shy, had no interest in playing with other kids, and she was worried that he was very depressed. I think that now, that would raise flags for everybody. But back then, remember, he was born in 1960. So we're talking 1966, maybe? Back then, you know, you, we didn't... Autism wasn't on our radars. Certain personality disorders weren't necessarily on our radars. We just didn't have the knowledge we have now and the acceptance we have now. So his parents thought he just had a shy temperament like his dad. His dad is kind of a nerdy chemist and said he was just kind of a, a quiet child. You can never predict that. That's right. Yeah, you're thinking, oh my, I need to get him help. We need to talk. We need to go to a therapist. My kids have have had bouts, you know, or they have anxiety, especially like through COVID or whatnot. Never in my, like, I would never imagine that any of them would ultimately be a serial killer. Well, one of them is going to be, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, maybe more than one. 
Well, so, you know, his dad even wrote a book. His dad is, you know, he's laden with guilt, as any of us would be. I would argue, you know, we, we can't look at it that way. And we can, we'll talk more about that in a bit. But his dad takes a lot of blame. Um, Dahmer is, you know, he would shake his head at that. He takes, he says, look, I was, this was happening. That's not anybody making this happen. This was happening in my brain. It wasn't anything I saw. It wasn't anything that happened to me. This was just there. Right. That was one. Now, in hindsight, we could say, okay, there was a disconnect with him as a small child. That could have been the signs of autism spectrum disorder. It could be schizotypal personality disorder. But, you know, who knows anything about that, especially back then? Yeah. I, I mean, I still, this is uh, honestly schizotypical. Is schizotypal. Schizotypal. It's not typical. It's typical. It's very atypical. Yeah. Um, I had never even heard of that until you just said it today. So it's it's new to me as well. Like I like we know schizophrenic. We know I mean we have all these other labels, we have all these other diagnoses, but then there's things that we haven't even um heard about or even know the symptoms of or so how do you even associate, you know, like that diagnosis or that type of um, mental illness to whatever behavior your child is doing at the time or young adult or whatever. I think that is such a good point. I had not heard of schizotypal personality disorder until I was in graduate school. And there's another one too called schizoid or schizoid. And these are all schizo schizophrenia spectrum. And it's interesting you should say that because back then I'm like, okay, maybe you don't need to know about it unless you're going into psychology or neuroscience and you're you know working with that population. But that just isn't true. If something is 1% to 4%, in some cases 10% of our population, we all should have some basic education in these personality disorders. Especially, I would argue, um, the cluster Bs, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, because that influences interpersonal relationships to such an intense degree that often I hear I was helping somebody who was going through a divorce with somebody who suffers from borderline personality disorder and and she was not getting any help. And, And he said to me, why why aren't we taught this in high school? Why don't we know that these are not people who are locked up? These are not people who are medicated. This is these are your family members. These are your neighbors. These are your good friends who have these personality disorders. And there are better ways to interact with them. And if you don't have any information about that, how are you supposed to know? And I have no idea. I mean, I don't, we, maybe you'll get a course in abnormal psych in high school, maybe. But I don't know. I feel like I haven't used trigonometry yet. Yeah. How, but, how do you know what you don't know? You know? Right. You can't know it if you don't even know it. Yeah. Oh gosh. Really? Yeah. I don't Glad know. I don't, I don't know those either. So it's okay. <laughs> anyway, to your point, there would be no reason for you to know what schizotypal personality disorder is, but I think you should know it because it's at least 4% of the population and you work in education. You know, you should have all the abnormal psych, but there's no way, like, unless you go research it yourself, I just don't know where one learns this stuff. 60s and 70s, that was just unheard of. It was embarrassing. There was right. like shame to it. And if you had to be on any type of medication like that, you have to keep a secret. And it's just, uh, um, it's sad that it was like that. But, but like I said, again, they, they obviously didn't know, you know. We, right. Well, and in their defense, Dahmer was really good at hiding his obsessive 
overwhelming, overpowering urges. Now, his teenage years, he got even more reclusive, more friendless, and he became irritable and tense. And what his parents didn't know is that he started drinking heavily at like age 10. He would bring scotch (laughs) to his classroom. And I've heard, I cannot confirm this, I've heard it was in like flasks at first. And then he was like, he was like kicking it with a tumbler, you know, at his desk drinking scotch. I I just, a 10-year-old drinking, what, scotch? I feel like you 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 have to. I mean, steal it. And also you have to like have gray hair and play golf. I don't, I mean, scotch? And scotch smells like it's not like vodka, right? I, right. I don't really drink scotch, so. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. 